0: Brian McClanahan show episode 403. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan show. Show. Glad to be back with the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now. McClanahan Academy subscribers are getting the coupons for that. You want those coupons because you're going to get a lot off of these classes. Plus, I've knocked the price off some of my other classes, too. It's a win-win for you. You get all kinds of great stuff. And, of course, you support the podcast. I mean, this is why I did it, because I give this to you free of charge. So you get free stuff all the time, but if you buy some of the classes, you help support me, and continuing to do this podcast. You can also click on that support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate. You can get uh, which you gets your autograph on one of my books. You, of course, you can purchase one of my books at any fine retailer that sells books. Generally, the large retailers have them, and there aren't many other bookstores now but large retailers. So, My latest is Southern Scribbling, 60 Essays in Defenses of Southern Tradition. You want that one, but I've got all kinds of other cool stuff, and as this is we're at President's Day and George Washington's birthday, and all these things. And my last podcast focused on President's Day. Uh, you get that Nine Presidents book. It's just fantastic. My my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution is very good. The new class at McClanahan Academy deals with the Constitution. Great stuff. You're going to want to get these classes. So, do over McClanahan Academy do that. Click on that shop tab, though, at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All kinds of ways to support the show. Share it around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcast. Do all you can to get people thinking locally and acting locally. All right. This is an interesting episode for me. This piece came out in October of 2020. And it's not something... I mean, look, I talk about history on this podcast. I also do the Abbeville Institute podcast, which is a different slant on things. It's all, all things Southern. Uh, but this particular piece was sent to me by a listener... And I hadn't seen it because I don't go out and I don't read all these online Civil War journals and all these things. There's just so much so much stuff out there. There's so much information. It's very hard to keep up with everything. But this was sent to me, and I, I wasn't aware of it till this week. But I thought it was an interesting piece because it shows you the extent to which one side of this argument has to try to twist things to get it to fit their narrative. This is where history is biased, and I've said this before. Look, I'm biased. I tell you my bias is out front. You're going to get, when you read what I what I write, or you listen to this podcast, or you get McClanahan Academy courses, you know what you're getting. You know the bias that I'm going to come at you with. I mean, I'm up front about it. The problem is, the other side is not so clear about their biases, and they hide behind this... Noble dream of objectivity. You see, to them, it's just all objective. When I say that this is what history really was, I'm just being objective and looking at all the information. You're the one that's being biased. In fact, your own worldview, what they don't realize, is coloring everything. One of the things I learned, as an undergraduate even, but of course it became very apparent in graduate school, as I was a young person getting into history, and if I can impart this on you, if you're a young person getting involved in history, or if you're someone who's just getting involved in it for the first time, maybe you're not a young person, but you're just interested in history. Look at who's writing it. Look at who they are. Because I'm going to tell you, their political leanings are going to influence how they write things. And I remember I was in a seminar. Again, I was a young graduate student. I was there, and the department chair was in the seminar. He was, the, he was leading the seminar. We had this discussion And he actually assigned this book by a man named Peter Novick, That Noble Noble Dream. He assigned it because he was very clear that, look, he, he believed that historians were not unbiased. There was no objectivity in history. It just didn't exist. And his position was he became a leftist because he studied history. Whereas for me, it was the other way. He became a progressive leftist because he started studying history and he thought this is where, this is the true history. I mean... We've got this history of oppressed people, and you know progressivism is there to save everybody, and we just need to do these things. Progressivism is authoritarian. I mean, there's no part of it that's not. It's always been authoritarian. It's a certain strain of imperial, cultural imperialism that's been around throughout all throughout human history. You find it quite, I mean it's it's the idea of the city upon a hill, and we all have to be like this in America anyways. And so I said, I don't know how you came to that conclusion. As I read history, what I see is uh, the authoritarians causing great damage, the state causing great damage to people. No matter what period of time you're looking at, the state causes great damage. And that's the real problem. That The more I read the Jeffersonians who talked about you know the state and finance getting together and how that was so problematic, and the state crushing people. I mean, it didn't matter if it was on the right or the left. The state was crushing people. It was, a, it was destroying civil liberties for all kinds of people. And to me, that was the real story of Western civilization. That decentralization is what people naturally were inclined to. And kind of living their own lives and doing their own things. But the state would crush that. If you look at, for example, I mean, the Reformation, what was going on there? Well, the state was trying to crush religious dissent. And if you're a, an ardent Catholic, well, you can say, well, this is going to cause all kinds of problems later on. You can, I mean, if you want to draw lines and parallels and all kinds of things, you can look at as the Reformation takes hold, you start seeing the rise of dissenting movements and all kinds of things. But America, I'm sorry, people in Western civilization have long been opposed to oppressive governments. I mean, just go back to Greece and Rome and other things. I mean, these are things that have happened. So when I looked at history, I saw dissent as important, but not dissent in a way that would create another powerful state, which is what the progressives all wanted. They didn't want a situation where there wasn't a powerful state. They wanted a powerful state to implement their vision of the right way to do things. So history, that's just a long-winded way, way of saying history is biased. And this whole idea of the lost cause myth, that's a biased thing to say. There's just a myth of the law. Lo- I mean, what That term myth is also loaded because all histories are myths. They're all stories of people, places, events, heroic deeds, great things. And everyone in history, I don't care who it is, if they're placed on a pedestal in any way, there's going to be skeletons in their closet, and there's going to be things you could not like them for. But that does not mean that they're not great people in certain ways. They're people, so they're going to have their faults. They're not perfect. But I don't think anyone ever really thought they were. I mean, look. George Washington's a great man. Does he have his problems? Certainly. He's a man. Robert E. Lee's a great man. Does he have his problems? Certainly he does. But you see what's happened in the last 20 years or so is great men like that have been torn down and others have been put in their place. And that's not to say that some of the people that the left is, is promoting as great people are not great people in the things that they did for their own reasons. But you don't tear the others down because of the skeletons, because you can find them in all of them. And there's always some uh, truth stretching in all of these things. But this particular piece is interesting because it gets into the idea of the real reason for Union monuments. Now, you see this all the time. What are the real reasons for Confederate monuments? The left likes to run, the real reason for Confederate monuments it's all about slavery and race. They try to run these stories. And as Confederate monuments have been taken down now, across the United States, everyone's kind of left the Union monuments alone. Now, I know in the summer of rage of 2020, some Union monuments were vandalized. And we have Abraham Lincoln under attack in some areas. And we've got San Francisco taking the names down of anything. So now know the progressives are insane. They are. I mean, they are clinically insane, I think. But on the other hand, Union monuments were generally left alone. Because supposedly we have this glorious union fighting to free slaves and this heinous confeder- confederacy fighting to keep slaves. And so the union guys are the good guys, are the guys in the white hats. The confederacy are the bad guys, the guys in the black hats. And we have, you know, good and bad. I mean, people like dichotomies. They like good and bad. They like clear-cut winners and clear-cut losers or clear-cut good guys and clear-cut bad guys. It's not always that way. There's not always clear-cut good guys and good could- you know, clear-cut bad guys. In fact, a lot of times they're both good and bad in their own ways. But this piece was written by a high school teacher in uh, Massachusetts. The title is "But What of Union Civil War Monuments: The Shortcomings of Northern Civil War Commemoration." High school teacher out of Massachusetts, and uh, it's in the Journal of the Civil War Era Came out in October twenty twenty. Darren Barry. As Confederate Civil War monuments continue to come under siege for their white supremacist representations of the nation's most transformative conflict, Union Civil War monuments and their inscriptions exist in an illusionary realm of public approval. So first of all, I mean, he's saying right from the beginning, he believes that Confederate monuments are all about white supremacist representation. But he's perplexed as to why Union monuments have been left alone. Why? In fact, there is an inherent belief among many people that Union Civil War monuments, by their very nature, exemplify the antithesis of a pro-slavery racist South. I mean, uh, Union monuments are good. As Thomas J. Brown points out, however, apart from those that included the end of the Gettysburg Address, less than 5% of known Union inscriptions refer explicitly to the abolition of slavery as an achievement celebrated by the monument. By failing to acknowledge a Union victory as a long-due, overdue deliverance of the egalitarian principles under which the nation was founded, Northern Civil War monuments contributed to a collective historical ignorance that surrounded the war's meaning and memory for decades. So you know what the problem is? These people that put these monuments up didn't realize that in the 21st century, we wanted them to say that this was an egalitarian war for ending slavery. Those stupid idiots, why didn't they know in 2021? This is what we wanted them to stick on that monument because that's what we think it's about. We don't care what you thought it was about when you're putting the monument up. This is what we think it's about now. This egalitarian, <laughs> the egalitarian principles. Yeah, because, you know, the United States was founded on egalitarian principles. No, it wasn't. This is, I mean, it shows you that Mr. Barry, who teaches in a Massachusetts high school, needs to learn a lot more history, and this is a sad thing. It's a sad thing. Because he's teaching students who are going to believe this nonsense. Just like yesterday, I talked about 18% of people thought Barack Obama was the best president. I mean, this is just stupidity. Rather than make a definitive statement on the Civil War's emancipation outcomes, the vast majority of Union monuments bypass the issue of slavery altogether and instead express the war's purpose in far more temperate terms. Well, why? Because that's what they thought it was about. I mean, this is just, it actually proves the point about Confederate monuments. Why is it that Southerners put these things on Confederate monuments? Not to distort what history the the history of the conflict, because this is what they thought it was about. This is what Union soldiers thought the war was about. Now, some put on there about ending slavery. But the vast majority, only 5% of Union monuments, which, by the way, are all being built about the same time Confederate monuments are. All in the same time period. But I guess these are just symbols of white supremacy as well. I mean, this is how stupid this is. No, they're about the war. I mean, the, the whole idea of these monuments was to commemorate the men who fought in the war, both sides. The great heroes on both sides, the common soldier on both sides, the men. We had a million people die in that conflict, a million people. about 13% of the population. You think about what that would be now. Tremendous. If you had that many people, one in seven or so die in in a modern conflict, how many Americans that would be? This is catastrophic. It's not transformative. It is transformative in many ways because it created the unitary nation state. But it's also catastrophic. To be clear, Union and Confederate monuments do not offer homogenous descriptions of the Civil War. Northerners prided themselves in their victory over the South. And for the most part, the public monuments honoring their sacrifices reflected that sentiment. Across the entire region, Union monuments and various constructs celebrated the preservation of the United States and the defeat of a rebellious South. Well, that's what it was about. I mean, you go back, look, James McPherson, for Cause and Comrades, point this out. Most people that were fighting in the war for the Union weren't fighting to free slaves. They were fighting to save the Union. This is what they were told they were doing. This is what they thought they were doing. And when emancipation became a war aim, a lot of people deserted. Now, near the end of the war, you started seeing more Union soldiers saying, well, I mean, I guess if this is going to come out of it, this is good. But Lincoln himself was willing to put off the emancipation of slavery For decades, if necessary, to save the Union. You see, the war was about saving the Union. That's why Lincoln went to war. (laughs) He didn't go to war for any other reason. That's why Southerners went to war, to gain their independence... Now you can say, well, yes, but that independence involved slavery. Well, there were still slave states in the Union when when the war started in April of 1861. So how is this a war for slavery or against slavery? It's not. It's a war for independence or against independence. It's the exact same position we had in 1775 and 1776, except Lincoln's occupation was King George III. And the South was George Washington and Jefferson and John Adams even. and Samuel Adams and John Hancock. That's the South. Still in the frenetic post-war race to erect tangible interpretations of the war's legacy, Northerners and Southerners found common ground. Gee, I wonder why. Because they both viewed the war the exact same way. This is what the guy can't get. He just, he's perplexed by this. How can this be happening? Because I think the war was about slavery. And we all of us progressive historians, all the Twitter historians sitting around, uh, you know, uh, patting each other on the back, I'll be kind about what I would say there, are saying the war's about slavery. So how can these dip, dippies back in the uh, early 20th century and the late 19th century say it was about something else? Because it was about something else. And their physical manifestations and their inscriptions, Confederate and Union memorials generally paid nondescript homage to the soldiers who had periled or lost their lives in the war. Gee, I wonder, again, I wonder why. Because that's what these statues were for. While many northern monuments touted guardianship of the Union as the main impetus for war, and southern monuments conversely pointed to states' rights, the question of whether or not this was to abolish slavery remained unclear. No, it wasn't unclear. This is what <laughs> of war wasn't about that to these people in fact anyone visiting civil war monuments in either region was likely to get the impression that the war had nothing to do at all with emancipation because it didn't this is this is the the whole stupidity of this whole well they're, they're they don't understand the whole war is about emancipation you you almost can't make up this stuff Again, I say this a lot, and somebody said, you use the word stupid a lot, because you got to call out stupid for what it is. This is stupid. You're trying to say, you know what, these people are dumb because they didn't put the right reason when they built their monument. They didn't, they didn't consult us about what that was about. So if the Union guys are saying the war was about saving the Union, and the Southern guys are saying the war is about states' rights or independence, Then what was the war really about? Uh, This is coming from people who fought in it. Would they lie? Would both sides lie? I mean, I can understand where you could say, you know what, if all these Union monuments were saying the war was about ending slavery, and all the Southern monuments were not talking about that at all, well, then you can make a case that, well, I mean, these Southerners are lying. But here we have both sides saying the exact same thing. Now, certainly, they talked about slavery. They talked about slavery after the war was over. There were Southerners that said, yeah, I mean, slavery was a cause of independence or these kind of things. These, these statements were made. I've had a whole podcast, though, on why slavery. Why slavery was really important at the time, and it wasn't for moralistic concerns like you would think. It was about expansion in the territories. Now, Northerners didn't like the institution for a lot of reasons, mostly because of racism, because <laughs> they didn't want competition with, with uh, slaves or free blacks. This is what the Republican Party was all about. was the white man's party. They said it. They said it. So if these things are true, if both these sides are saying the exact same thing, then why are we saying that they're wrong? Well, because it doesn't fit our our modern narrative. Although the past 20 years plus of Civil War scholarship has produced a significant number of memory studies, which is history. This is another thing. Memory studies. Um, So they've written histories of history. How people write history. I mean, that's what history is. It's, it's, the, it's collective memory. Very few have focused exclusively on Union monuments and their inscriptions. Nevertheless, in the studies that do include analysis of Civil War, Northern Civil War commemoration, two predominant themes have clearly emerged. In Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race War, and Monument in 19th Century America, Kirk Savage asserts that in order to perpetuate the nation's ingrained framework of white supremacy, Northerners and Southerners deliberately constructed monuments to disregard the war's emancipationist purpose. No, no. No, no. It wasn't because they needed to perpetuate that. It was already given. It was a given at the time. Nobody thought otherwise. What they're putting is they're putting monuments up because this is what they thought of the war, not for some insidious reason. Nobody would think to themselves at this time, you know what? Uh, We've got a real problem here because we've got this situation where white supremacy is not believed by most people. So what we have to do is create monuments to get them to think that's the thing that they got to be thinking. America was predominantly racist in the early 20th and late 19th century, and this is a given. Not so today, but it was 100 years ago. So these people aren't putting anything up to try to enforce something that's already a given. You don't need to do that. It's like putting up a monument to a car and saying, you know what? We're going to perpetuate that cars are really important for transportation. So we're going to put, I mean, we think people are not thinking about this anymore. So let's put a monument of a car up so that people remember how important cars are. No, they wouldn't do that. or it's just a given. Cars are important. We like cars. Cars get us around. Likewise, in Race and Reunion, the Civil War in American Memory, David Blight argues that in the interest of maintaining a deep-rooted antebellum racial hierarchy, soldiers' monuments emphasized reconciliation and neglected the war's abolitionist aims. I've already done an entire... This is a funny story about Race and Reunion. Uh, Kevin Cruz is one of these idiotic Twitter historians that um, is uh, all over the place at times, you know, because he's, he's supposedly the, the shining star of the progressive left, He's a he's a dippy, but anyways, I I confronted him on Twitter one time. Show me one example in the South of a Confederate monument where the inscription explicitly states that the war that the 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 entire monument was put up for quote unquote white supremacy. He couldn't find one. In fact, the only thing they found was a non-war monument. Of course, the one the Liberty Monument was taken down in New Orleans, which was about a riot of eighteen seventy-two. Yes, that one was about that, but that's not a Soldiers Mountain. So I said, try again. So what did he do? He blocked me. He blocked me. But one of the comments was, uh, I'd love for this guy, because they didn't know who I was, this guy to give a detailed review of Race Reunion. So I did it. I just said, okay, I'll give you a detailed review. It was one of my podcasts. <laughs> okay, here's a detailed review of Race Reunion. You can go out and find that one too, if you want to. But this is how stupid this is. And then, of course, some of the other Twitter stories have blocked me as well. And uh, just absolutely hilarious. Because they can't handle being exposed for being frauds. In contrast, scholars such as Gary Gallagher and Caroline Janney maintained that the Civil War, Union Civil War commemoration was hardly an exercise in reproachment and instead argued that northern monuments exalted the Unionist cause. Well, they did. It was about saving the Union. Gary Gallagher is no neo-Confederate at all. I mean, he really doesn't like... The Confederacy, but he wrote two very good books: one, the Confederate War; one, the Union War. These things were good; they were just good, solid histories that got into everything that had to do with it. He's, he's not, he's not being pro-South or pro-Union. He's he's showing the sides of each what these people thought about the war at the time. Same thing with James McPherson. I can I can quibble with McPherson on some of the things he's done, but he's a solid historian in some ways, and he'll teach you some things. People, I, I got an email the other day: how can you read some things? And not just, I mean, how can you overlook some of the things they're saying? Because you find the gems in some of this stuff. Sometimes they get it right. More recently, Thomas J. Brown's Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America reframes leading reconciliationist theories to argue that by the 1930s, Civil War Monuments reflected the country's transformational adoption of military principles. So the monuments were there just to have some kind of martial display. We love soldiers. Well, the 1930s were pretty well, you know, the U.S. military was in a retrenchment stage. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of a military. Differing historical interpretations, notwithstanding, however, one thing remains true. The overwhelming number of civil, Northern Civil War monuments make no reference to slavery whatsoever. Because it didn't matter. They were fighting to save the Union. Perhaps a closer look at one of the northern monuments that candidly announced emancipation as as a Civil War outcome will help further illuminate the different deficiencies of the vast majority of those that did not. Erected in 1870, this one shows that all these these deficiencies in the other ones, this one shows how important it was for the war, but all these others were just stupid. Erected in 1874, the Soldiers' Monument in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, represents a clear case of anti-reconciliatory monument building. Dedicated to those from Fitchburg who secured the unity of the Republic and the freedom of an oppressed race, the Soldiers Monument announced to everyone who visited that the Civil War served the unmistakable dual purpose of safeguarding the Union and emancipating four million slaves from bondage. As a small New England town with profound connections to its revolutionary heritage, Fitchburg's Unionist convictions were entrenched in the community. The town was also an epicenter of anti-slavery activism in the mid-1800s, And many locals worked directly with prominent abolitionists, such as Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, Theodore Weld, and a host of others. So that didn't have anything to do with what they put up here. I mean, the people that they worked with and what they were doing didn't have anything to color color their view of what the war was about. Again, context matters. So these people might say uh, that it was all about slavery. Well, why? Because of who they were. This abolitionist ideology mixed with the community's memory of the revolution to produce a soldier's monument that anchored Pittsburgh's unionist and emancipationist understanding of the Civil War for decades. But just 30 miles down the road from Fitchburg in Worcester, Massachusetts, however, residents completely ignored the issue of slavery in their Civil War commemoration. Well, this is because this is what most people thought. This is telling not only as, was Worcester a hotbed of abolitionism in the antebellum era, but 15 African Americans from Worcester volunteered for service with the famed 54th Massachusetts, 22 served in the 5th Massachusetts Colored Cavalry. Five joined the 55th Colored Regiment of Massachusetts. Some served with Colored Regiments in Rhode Island, and still others volunteered to fight in units outside of New England. Moreover, Worcester resident and abolitionist Thomas Wentworth Higginson took command of the 1st South Carolina Carolina Colored Infantry in November 1862. Yet rather than build a monument that voiced the community's support for emancipation and universal civil rights, Worcester's Soldiers Monument was dedicated to the memory of the men who gave their lives for the unity of the republic. Maybe that's because that's what they were fighting for. Like all Civil War memorials, both the Pittsburgh and Worcester soldiers' monuments were intended to sustain a lasting memory of the community's interpretation of the causes and consequences of the conflict. Or maybe they were just about the soldiers who died. I mean, did you ever think of that? It's a soldiers' monument about the, for the men who died. And it's a beautiful monument. The monument in Worcester is just as pretty as any of the southern monuments. We, we want to take those down but leave the other ones up. It's ridiculous. These are works of art, and they should stay, all of them. Although both communities saw the war, at least in part, as a battle for the abolition of slavery, only one of them chose to honor that objective in their monument. That's because they didn't think it was the point of the war. It was a byproduct of the war, but it wasn't the point of the war. Pittsburgh's adjoining town of... Uh, Leominster, I guess is how you say it, Massachusetts, I don't know how to say that properly, illustrates a slowly evolving change in the way that one northern community dealt with the issue of slavery in regards to the Civil War monument construction. Erected in 1866, just one year after the war ended, the Soldiers' Monument made no mention of either slavery or Union. Instead of declaring any specific cause or outcome of the Civil War, the monument was simply dedicated to honor the brave. 1866, one year after the war, this monument is dedicated to the soldiers who fought and died. Right? So, one year after the war is over, these people should know what the war was about. They're they're putting up a monument to honor the men who died. Because it's a soldier's monument. Why else would you put one there? No, no. Because these monuments have to have some type of usable historical past. we got to use history as a weapon. So, in 1998... Uh, 100, almost 130 years later, we decided that we know better what the war was about. So we're going to put up a monument that, or we're going to, we're going to change it so that these people really know what it's about. The people there redefined the community's understanding of the Civil War with a monument that commemorated the service of Oliver E. Hazard, an African-American resident who fought with the 54th Massachusetts the monument not only features a sculpture of Hazard in his uniform, but is also inscribed with language that clearly contextualizes a Civil War in Emancipationist tones. This memorial is dedicated to honoring the memory of all these soldiers who serve with courage for freedom and justice. We must, we can, and we will be free. So 130 years later, the wise people of Massachusetts, aside those dippies in 1866, had no idea what they're talking about. So we're going to put up a monument that now reflects what we think the war was about and why these idiots in 1866 not listen to us. Although Le Minster was a place that fostered anti-slavery activity and often collaborated with abolitionists from Fitchburg and Worcester, the town did not imbue their Civil War monument with any emancipation of significance. Well, why? Because it wasn't about that. Rather, they chose to commemorate a generic version of wartime valor only. The timing of the 1998 Hazard Monument War was likely an outgrowth of the unyielding efforts of the Civil Rights Movement. This long delay and Lee Minster's recognition of the abolition of slavery as a direct consequence of the Civil War demonstrates the glacial place at which most northern communities shifted their viewpoints and further highlights the progressive minds of the people of Fitchburg in the mid-19th century. Or how about in 1866 is what people really thought the war was about. I love the comments. There's a few comments like, Hey, moron." The reason they didn't do it is because that wasn't what the war was about. You're trying to foist your views on people from the past. This is the this is the whole point of these progressives. What they're trying to do is make the people of the past, they, they hold them accountable if they don't think like them. Why? The point of history is to understand. And if we're looking to understand why would these people do this, it's not because they had some, I mean, that was given what these people were. They're doing it to honor the men who served to save the Union because that's what they wanted to do. Even if you say that these unioners, Union soldiers were calling you know, Southerners traitors and these other things, why would they call them that? Why would that be a central issue? Because they thought they were traitors to the Union. That was the whole point. This very limited examination of Northern Civil War monument is central in central Massachusetts reveals three very different approaches to the question of slavery and how it was remembered within the context of the war. Because the Fitchburg Soldiers Monument represents an anomaly, of Union Civil War commemoration, it also exposes an intentional forgetting in the great majority of all other of Northern monuments. No, no, not an intentional forgetting. It's not intentional. They forget. They just didn't. They didn't think it was important. Over time, the abandonment of the Civil War's emancipation's implications. I'm sorry, implications. Excuse me, helped muddle. The war has true meaning. No, no, it didn't. This is what they thought at the time. This is so silly. By emphasizing the preservation of the Union, ignoring the issue of slavery, most northern monuments helped engrave an obscure memory of the war in both the landscape and minds of the nation. No, it didn't. This is what people thought at the time. It didn't do anything. There was no nefarious reason for doing this. This is what people thought. This is what they thought. This what the war was about. This is what they were doing. This deliberate erasure... Not deliberate. Again, look at the language this guy is using. Deliberate erasure also hindered the ongoing struggle struggle for racial equality in the United States. 1866, we had, by that point, by 1874, I mean, all these things. By this point, we've had military reconstruction. 1866, we've got Johnson. 1868, we've got military occupation of the South. I mean, it's not re- it's not hindering any of that. As such, a, concealed, a concerted effort by modern historians to determine why exactly so many northern monuments disregard the war's fundamental issue of slavery led considerably to our understanding of Civil War memory. Well, well, it wasn't the fundamental issue of the war. The fundamental issue of the war was saving the Union. In fact, studies that spotlight the shortcomings of northern Civil War monuments will likely reveal as much, if not more, about the Civil War in its aftermath as those that focus entirely on their notorious lost cause counterparts. I actually agree with that statement. Northern studies is the key. I would tell anybody interested in Southern history to forget it. It's already been done. And there's all kinds of cool stuff you can do with it. But if you really want to get to the true root of everything, go to the North. This is what Emmy Bradford did. He, he read more about the Northern founders than he did the Southern founders. Why? Because that's the key. It's the key. Because you've got this dichotomy that's false between... Lost cause, righteous cause. The righteous cause myth is the worst part of it. So, anyways, that's the end of the piece. Again, uh, just a ridiculous piece because but it's, it, shows, it shows what the progressives want to do. They want to change the entire interpretation of it, and they can't stand it that these people in 1866 didn't think like them. So we're going to make them think like us because we're going to contextualize everything and make it look like they're thinking like us. That's the whole point of all of this. Union monuments are going to be changed too. Not just Confederate monuments. So the title of this podcast is The Real Reason for Union Monuments, which is preserving the Union, right? They said it. They said it. I've said it before. Why are, real reason for Confederate monuments? Just read the monuments. Well, read these monuments. This is The Real Reason for Northern Monuments. Some would say that emancipation. So those people, that's what they thought. They expressed what they thought about the war in the monuments. And the vast majority, 95%, didn't say slavery was even an issue for them. So, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.